Okay, guys, thanks for joining so much. Today I have Wrangler Star with us. Um, many of you guys maybe have known his YouTube channel and seen his videos, so big pleasure. Thank you a lot, Cody. Really appreciate it. I'm very happy to be here. Yeah, this has been awesome for us. And so, yeah, I just kind of want to get right into it. Um, just like I mentioned, I think a lot of our viewers know you and they have seen your stuff. And we always like to highlight the people who use our product and kind of what they're using it for and our boots and stuff. And kind of run us through your your story, I guess, how you even got into this homesteading lifestyle and these skills that you have. And you mentioned your grandfather and mechanicking and how did that even happen and get started and get going? And how did you get into this lifestyle? Well, I was very fortunate to be raised by a couple of really extraordinary men, as we spoke earlier. My dad was a general contractor. Uh, we were always remodeling. You know how contractors are. Yeah. usually remodeling their own house. And my grandfather was a mechanic. He, uh, my family homesteaded uh, in the Oklahoma land rush. And during the 30s, during the Dust Bowl, they couldn't make a living anymore. And they moved out west, uh, just like the Okies. You know, you saw from yeah. Robert Steinbeck's yeah. The Grapes of Wrath. and. Granddad and the family moved to Idaho, northern Idaho, and they lived in tents for three or four years. Little kids, family, everyone, and worked in the woods, uh, doing logging and cutting firewood. Uh, my great-granddad turned their Model A into an old sawmill, and that's how they made a living until World War II, and the boys were drafted and went off to war. Wow. So that's uh, you know kind of my background of, of this area. And, and granddad was always, um, was very, he was never a wealthy man, uh, but he was, uh, quality was important to him. Uh, he wouldn't spend money on something that wasn't the best. And I really got that from him. Even when I was getting involved in construction when I was 18 or so, I, would, I made the effort and spent my own money to get custom-made boots. Uh, no one even that I worked with did that, but uh, it was important because my granddad taught me about these things. And we, went, we hunted together and fished together, and he was always very insistent on quality. And putting your, when you put your name to something, that it, was, it reflected who you were. Yeah. It was, that was important. So that was... Um, really important. You know, I was close to my dad, but I was even closer to my grandfather and those values I just carry with me uh, today. Uh, fast forward, I worked in the trades construction most of my life. Um, when I was about 18, 19, uh, bought some heavy equipment, started excavating, uh, did that for quite a while, and then finally wanted to kind of get out of that um, after a while. I never really enjoyed it. Um, and I went to school and started getting into, I wanted to become a firefighter. So I uh, got a job, uh, wildland firefighting in Colorado, and of course, you know, the boots came along with that, and um, that kind of got me into, um, you know, that whole culture, and then um, when that, when I was done with that, I moved back to Oregon, and I didn't really know anyone, and so I had um, reached out to some friends and uh, went to a party, and I met my wife. Uh, she had just uh, graduated from school and was having a party, and I'd met her, took an instant dislike to her, uh, but... Got in that circle of friends, and we got together, ended up getting married. So that, that was 20 years ago. Uh, we had Jack right away, and we were living in the city in Portland, and the city really looked different to me after I had children. Uh, I didn't mind, you know, the, what was going on and the drug dealing and stuff on the sidewalks that you have, you know, when you're single. But when I thought my kids running around in that environment, I thought, I don't want to raise kids here. It's just not, not appropriate. So my wife and I started looking for country properties and, um, and ended up doing that. So we bought our first off-grid property, uh, 20 acres up on the side of the mountain, very, very remote, no power, no water, no anything. And the two of us bought an excavator and a cat, uh, logged it, uh, developed it, did all those things. And that was about the time the YouTube channel started. So my YouTube channel really started and kind of featuring that move, that move of a couple that was coming out of the city and wanted to have a, a little bit more rural 
uh, independent lifestyle where we could control what we ate and just have some control over our lives and have a better influence for our kids. Um, and that really is how the channel started. But I, as far as homesteading and doing these sort of things, I didn't really know much of that. My dad was a carpenter, a general contractor, so I knew how to build. I had those skills. My granddad was a mechanic and fabricator, so I'd picked all that up from him. So it really put me in a good position because of those two men and what they taught me uh, to be able to do the things I needed to do to kind of get a homestead set up. That's so amazing. Are you seeing, um, so I'm, I'm young, I'm younger than I th- I'm just this youngest kind of Gen Z right there generation. Are you seeing young people do this, like move and get land and maybe after your channel, have you feel like you've influenced people to do that? Oh, absolutely. And I've been on YouTube for 13 years now. So I've actually seen an entire new generation come yeah. on, come online. Yeah. And uh, the enthusiasm for that is, is the appetite's insatiable. Uh, but what they don't have is they don't have anyone to show them. Wow. Uh, the thing that keeps coming up, I keep laughing. You know, my wife makes fun of me, but people said, we're so grateful. You've become the Internet's dad. Or the internet, yeah, you know, my yeah, child's yeah. dad showed these things. And so I've really refocused in the last, you know, few years or so to get back to some of those basic things that I often overlooked, just assuming that everyone knew how to do it. I assumed that people knew how to work on their car, knew, assumed that they knew how to change a tire or sharpen a chisel when they don't. Half of the kids that, um, you know, watch my channel have come from single parent homes. They didn't have anyone to show them. And so it's really a big part of the channel has been kind of sharing that and encouraging people and showing them those basic things that they need. And most of all, just telling them that you can do it. No one's ever told them that they can do anything they want to do. They just have to start and tr- try it. And what wow. I find is those things that are huge obstacles for you that you build up to a point where you think you could never do them. If you just start doing it, get your hand in there. Um, when you accomplishment, it's always a surprise how easy it was. And you say, why didn't I do this earlier? Wow. That's a really good perspective. Are there some things that you're like, what, like what is your wheelhouse? Are there some skills that you're just total master, some things not as much or you're still learning? Is there anything you don't know how to do? Brain surgery. I wouldn't say that I really, I don't have a very, uh, my attention span so short. I get bored with things. Um, so I'm, always, I'm happy to be, I guess, reach the level of competency. Sure. Whatever that may sure, be. Sure, sure, sure. I do admire someone uh, like your dad uh, sure. that can put his hand to the plow and really, really master something. Spend a whole lifetime of mastering it. Uh, that's just not in me. I get bored. So I jump around a lot. I'll, I'll get involved in blacksmithing. But when I get involved with it, I'm all in. You know, I'll buy all the stuff in the anvil. And I want to get to the point where I have a basic understanding of it and I could do it. Uh, but I don't necessarily want to do it all the time. And crosscut saws, for example, it was important for me to know how to use crosscut saws, to sharpen them, to maintain them, understand them, how to use them. And I got to the point where I was competent, and then I'm fine to move on. Uh, And that's important to me because crosscut saws, for example, are not something I'm going to cut firewood with. Could I if I had to? I would, but I'm going to use the chainsaw. Right. But if we get into a position, you know, in the times get difficult or financial times or natural disaster, who knows what, I want to have the ability to fall back on those traditional skills, at least be somewhat competent. So I wouldn't, I won't be in need. Wow. There are some people who feel like, you know, technology and, you know, the, the way the world is going, that it's not a waste of time, but like this shouldn't really be prioritized. Like what is, what is your view of that? And how do you balance? Cause you're doing YouTube and you're know all this stuff and you're very smart. How do you balance like this? I'm going to prioritize like traditional homesteading versus I want to stay on top of, AI and technology stuff, or do you not see it that way or you see it's both or like how are those worlds colliding you know I've never thought about that uh, that's a really good question uh, I think it's important for me personally is to follow what I'm interested in 
uh, more than anything else. I don't really think about, well, I need to do half of my time with traditional skills and the other half learning AI or computers. Sure. That's important. That, you know, we, we started the channel, we called it Modern Homesteading. And to me, that was use the technology if you have it. Of course, if you're burning 10 cords of firewood, use your chainsaw, use your wood splitter. But it wouldn't be a bad idea to have a saw or a backup in the case where you, you couldn't or didn't have access to these tools. So I think to run a channel that's genuine, that people enjoy dry watching, I think you need to follow your passions. You need to follow what's interesting to you. I don't do gardening videos. We do a lot of gardening, and, and Mrs. Deb, my, my wife, is into that. I have no interest in it whatsoever. I, I want to be out in the shop welding. I'll build fences. I'll do infrastructure, that sort of thing, but I don't want to do a garden. I can't do content on that. People will ask me, but I, I can't do it. I won't do it because I have no passion in it. It will come through. So you're genuinely interested in all the things that you're filming, and you're filming them because you're actually passionate about them. I don't know what tomorrow's video is going to be. That's so cool. To be honest with yeah, you. I, so I wake cool. up and I ask myself, there are things that need to be done, obviously, yeah, yeah. the chores. <clears throat> but there's what you want to do. So what I'm choosing content or what I'm going to spend my time on is what I want to do. That is so awesome. That's why I think that's why you're successful, because you're genuinely passionate about the thing that you're talking about and it's fresh and it's like right there going on in your life like right away That's you have awesome. to you have to be you know if you're going to be online and, and making videos for 10 12 13 years um and i've always been an open book you, you can't be dishonest you have yeah. to be genuine people are not stupid and they see through it and enthusiasm draws enthusiasm yeah and it's important for me what whatever you're doing it doesn't matter the content if you're a content creator and you're thinking well i don't have anything of interest and no one's going to watch it watch it that's not true what people want to watch is your enthusiasm. It's infectious. I watch a lot of content that things I'd never do. Uh, watchmaking. Sure. I'll never be a watchmaker, but I, I, I love it. I'm fascinated by it because the guys that I watch are so into it and the tools and all the excitement, and that draws me in. So that's the most important thing. You mentioned that your, um, your audience is mostly males and then mostly between this younger kind of age range. That's right. Yeah. Is there a particular reason you think that is? Do you think there's a reason why you know guys that aren't older are watching? Is just because they're not on YouTube, or do you think it's because there's this kind of like lack of this teaching and father kind of maybe people don't have dads in their life? Do you think that's what it's directly kind of connected to? I know it is. Yeah, yeah, I, I know it is, and and that's you know really the underlying my underlying passion for the whole thing is is for these young men. It's amazing. My, my heart really breaks. Uh, it's. When I look back on the opportunities that I had to have those two men in my life, my grandfather uh, teaching me to shoot a rifle, teaching me how to butcher an elk, uh, teaching me how to fish and, and weld and, and fabricate. You know, I just thought that was just ordinary. And it was ordinary in the environment that I grew up in. But that's not anymore. Um, so I appreciate that. And I realize how important that was. And I wouldn't even be here sit, sitting here today with, with you if it wasn't for that man. Um, I feel an obligation to that. So I have a real passion for these young men and the struggle that they have with the difficulties in the dating market, the difficulties being raised potentially by a single mother home. And if I can help with that or encourage or provide skills, <clears throat> that really is what I want to do. Yeah. How do you stay so consistent? It's been, you said, 12, 13 years. How do you do that? You just have to do what you're interested in. Wow. And it, it is difficult because there's a lot of pushback. You know, the channel has evolved a lot from the first time, you know, when we were doing timber framing with traditional tools. And there's a lot of people that enjoyed that and came on the channel because of that. And you'll hear folks say, well, I, I wish it was like it used to be. I wish, I wish we would, could get back to the timber framing or get back to the logging and such. But I got you to be consistent. Like you said, you have to follow what you're into. And what I'm into now, I'm a different person at 53 than I was at 43. 
my interests and where I'm at in life are completely different. I've moved on from a role, more of a role of doing, building, homestead, family, and all that sort, to a teaching role. So the longevity comes from just following what it is that you want to do and what you're interested in. It's easy to share what you're enthusiastic about. Wow, that's a really good answer. Wow, we're, we're very passionate about what we do. And so making videos for me is also easier. Like, w w I don't write a script for when we do, um, like, question stuff, like, hey, how do you oil your boots? I just talk about it because I kind of live this thing, and so I completely resonate with that. That's so, so true. Do you think that, like, other creators are lacking that, and they're kind of, like, making stuff up and treating it like a business, or, or, is it, or is that not the case? Do you think everybody's passionate about what they're talking about? Or No, it, it, uh, one question that comes up a lot is when you have a level of success uh, on social on YouTube or social media, people on the outside look at this and they think, well, what a great job. I wish I could do that. It looks so easy and I don't have to go to work. I can make my own hours. It's a job just like any other. But so they'll come to you and they'll ask for advice. I want to start a YouTube channel. I want to do this and that. And I'll ask them why. Uh, well, I want to make money. The moment I hear that, I know that it's never going to work. It won't be successful. Or people ask me, how long does it take to where I can make a living on YouTube or make a living? And I say, 10 years. It took me 10 years of grinding, of doing what I love to do with no promise of money. There was never any promise. Yeah. This was never guaranteed. I did it for six, seven years because I love doing it. Yeah. And that's why I'm still doing it today. Yeah. So what I, as far as sincerity of, of YouTube creators, anyone that's been on the platform for a long time, they pretty much have to be sincere. It, you can't maintain that level of phoniness or you can't be insincere for that long. So... I, and I don't know if I can speak to other creators and their motivation. Money is definitely into it. Money, when money came into YouTube, it changed the space. No longer are we doing things for love. You know, now I, I, I would be dishonest if I say that my content isn't somewhat curated according to what's going to do well on the algorithm. Sure, sure. But also if I'm going to put so much effort and time into content um, as a sole content creator, you want it to be viewed. You want it to do well. You want it to get out to as many people as possible. So... It's important to, it is a, a balance. You have to feed the algorithm. You have to give it what it wants. It's always changing. You have to be adaptive. Uh, but you also can't lose your soul, which is you've got to be doing what you really want to do and what you're excited about. And finding that balance. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. That's I wanted to um, I wanted to go back a little bit, touching your grandpa, on your grandfather. So um, I'm big on legacy. You know, my dad and, and my brothers and I were, were together in this in this business, so that's really cool. And I think you have a cool story with your grandpa and your dad and you. Um, can you can you speak on him a little bit more and like what was his particular skill set and like do you know how he learned what he learned and what was he like? What was his thing and mastery and maybe what are some of the key things you kind of picked up from him and skills and trades? The skill, the individual skills and trades are important, uh, but what's more important and I got this more. From my granddad and my dad was figure it out. There was never any excuses. My dad wouldn't tolerate any excuses. You know, as a kid, you come and you whine and, oh, I can't do this, or I'm not big enough, or I'm not strong enough. They mm -hmm. never allowed that. It was figure it out. Figure it out on your own. And, and that mentality and that attitude is the best thing that they ever did for me, regardless of all of the other skills. The skills wouldn't make any difference. Having the mentality that I can do it, whatever it is, I don't care if I don't know how to be a machinist. I'll go teach myself to be a machinist. I need to build a house or sheet my roof or do my plumbing. I don't know how to do that, but I can go get some books and do that. That's the most important thing that those men gave me. The skills were important as well. It was a really good one-two punch because granddad was on the mechanic side. Uh, he only worked, he had two jobs his whole life by the time he got out of the war. Funny story is he was working for a Ford garage 
and he would always go hunting. Our family was a big hunting family. We would take all of our vacation. He only had four weeks. Two weeks two weeks for elk, one week for deer, and then a one week for my, my nana, he'd take up to Canada for the, just just the two of them. Yeah. So it was it was everything. Granddad, he told me that uh, he put in a year in advance. I'm going to be taken off for hunting. And he said, dude, he was getting ready Friday after, Friday morning. He came into work. Get, he was all loaded up to go elk hunting. And the uh, shop foreman said, oh, Chet, you're not going to be able to go hunting. Uh, we're just too busy. Granddad didn't say anything, just went to work, did his whole work. End of the day, he backed his car in and loaded up his toolbox and quit and went hunting. Wow. Came back and got a job, and he worked that whole job. Until he was done. Until he was done. Yeah, that was the type of guy that he was. You know, honest as the day is long, he had no vice. I never heard him ever say anything negative about another man. Wow. He was the perfect role model. He was the greatest man I ever met. Wow. And uh, I just missed him terribly. That's so special. Yeah. When did he pass away? Probably about six years, six or seven years ago. Wow. Yeah. Wow. It was it was really interesting. He was able to see me um, having some success on YouTube. He never adopted computers. He never understood it. It wasn't of any interest to him. And I used to go over there and show him my YouTube videos. And I'd show him granddad. You know, we were up logging and doing timber framing. And he lo- used to love to watch those videos. And I would tell him, he'd ask me about my job. You know, where are you working? How are you paying for all this? I'm like, well, I'm making these YouTube videos, granddad. And he just never could understand it. Wow. He never could figure out how a man could not go and have an honest job and provide for his family. What was his like generation? So like, do you know like what year he graduated high school or anything like that? Let's see. I don't know exactly what year he was born, but he was, he was drafted in World War II when he was 19. Okay. It would have been that ni- 1941 or so. Sure. So he was probably born sometime in the 20s. In yeah. the 20s. Yeah. Okay. Rode, rode a horse to school. Wow. You know, so he saw... Uh, the computer age all yeah. the way to yeah. horseback to school. Did he ever talk to you about like the depression or, or World War II and like stories about just that time and oh, culture and hours? You know, we spent so, so much cool. time together. I told it, you know, once I got into school, you know how you start reading books and you think you're intellectual and I'm going to school your old granddad on stuff. And so I'd got the book uh, Steinbeck's The Great Grapes of Wrath, which documents yeah. you know the, that story. And I, told, I gave that to my granddad. I said, Granddad, you need to read this book. This is really good. This is about your story. And he said, I don't need to read that. He goes, I lived it, you know, yeah, that sort of yeah. thing. He told me that um, the family had two vehicles. They, I think the old Model T pickup and a Model A Ford car and all their possessions, they loaded up on that. And it was so heavy that the boys and the family had to get out and push when they went over the pass in the Rockies. Wow. It was just so unloaded. And then can you imagine living in tents? Yeah, when you mentioned that earlier, I was just like, wow, that's like that's like Oregon Trail style. It's like Oregon yeah, Trail. Yeah, it yeah. wasn't far from it. That's so cool. Yeah, and wow. there was a lot of, also a lot of racism. Um, I don't know if it was racism, but folks from California, Oregon, and Washington, Idaho were not accepting of, of the immigrants. East Coasters, yeah. Of, or Midwesterns. You know, yeah. They, they um, you know, treated them bad, took advantage of them. And there was one thing that Granddad did not like, and that was Californians. <laughs> And that was basically because of how they treated the Okies wow. uh, when they came there to work in the agriculture. Wow. Yeah. So there's maybe some similarities going on today. That's so could, funny. Could wow. Be, yeah. I um I have a similar, you know, um, I can resonate with that as well as my parents um, came in the 90s from former Soviet Union. So I've heard, just like you've heard hundreds of stories from your grandpa, I've heard hundreds of stories from my parents. And also my grandparents, too, are still alive and they're, they're here in America. And, um, you know, so many first-hand accounts of all of this stuff and how it was like. And when I will like hear, even like watch a movie or um, listen to something or read a book, it's like, it's, it's not that it's not, not true or it's not like, you know, 
factual. It's just like almost not the full story or almost that the in-person first-hand accounts are much deeper and much more rich oh, yes, and yeah. much more, you almost, um, you, you understand the, the tone and the language and the, the feeling. It's the experience that's kind of translated. And so I totally resonate with that. And, um, you know, my, my parents have been here since 94. So 2024 March will end up being, you know, 30 years. And so that'll end up that they have, would have spent more time in America than they would have over there. It's you know, a big milestone. That's a big milestone. Yeah. And um, for him to, for my parents to come to America, go through this period of time, see how everything is going, you know, whatever changes, Soviet Union has fallen. And, you know, at the time, people didn't think the Soviet Union would ever fall because it was so, you know, all this. So such milestone changes. And, and my parents were still very young. And so they're going to see even more, you know, who knows what the future holds. And so... Very interesting parallel that that crazy generation goes through this World War One, World War Two, Spanish flu, depression, all these things, and then we're seeing crazy things go on today. And um, I th it's gonna be cool for my kids to hear the stories of from my dad of hey, what was it like coming to America the first time? And he heard, he learned to count to ten in the plane. You know, my dad did. So pretty pretty cool, pretty kind of like interesting interesting thing. Uh, when I was when I was going to school and growing up and going to elementary school and stuff, so I grew up speaking two languages. So that was, well, you could say a couple, but like Ukrainian, Russian, and then you know, obviously English. And so my the the mentality was always um, I was almost grew up in like two different worldviews at the same time. So in America, kind of speaking English, and then at home, Slavic culture, all this kind of stuff. Um, I don't know if you were homeschooled or went to public school, but for you, was there kind of this thing where maybe you're growing up more of like a homesteading type environment and then you're going to maybe school with kids who are like maybe grew up in the city. Could you see the differences in culture, mentality, that maybe the way that they would talk, the things that they would say, their values? Would you Did you notice that as a kid? Was there like a paradigm there? Or was back then kind of everybody on the same kind of mentality playing level? Oh, no. There was a, well, my particular circumstance, I grew up in a, um, a Christian cult that was completely isolated. Um, and we were, it was a large church, uh, but we were not allowed to associate with anyone outside of that, that church. We, we even were to marry inside of it, not to have friends. Um, we lived in the world. Imagine the Amish without the Amish sure. clothing. So there were, there, you went to, were you homeschooled then? So there was no like public no school? Public school, wow. public school but, but I had a, a group of my friends that I grew up with in the church, and I had seven seven or eight friends that I'd known from the time I was an infant. And we, we did everything together. Did you play sports? No, we weren't allowed to. Interesting. Wow. Yeah, okay. but we were mostly into hunting and fishing. Gotcha. Gotcha. You know, so, so that we, was the fun part. Yeah. That was yeah. the fun thing. And, you know, we were at 16, we all had our licenses and all had trucks and we all had fishing boats. And we, would, we just were like, they were like brothers. That's so cool. All, all yeah, of us. Yeah. So I never had to really or was not really allowed to interact with anyone outside of public school because I had such a core group and we were always together. We were an oddity. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but we were, there was enough of us that no one could really mess with us. So what was your first kind of, um, uh, you know, maybe, maybe not exposure, but like interaction with people that were, you know, didn't grow up the way that you grew up? Was that already kind of when you were adult life, kind of moved out, lived in the city type vibe? And is that when you first started encountering that? Yeah, well, I, I made the decision. I, once I, the, 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 the group that I was raised in, they weren't really based on the Bible, Um it was loosely, and no, there was never really any teaching. It was kind of religion was to be a private thing. So it was basically used as control, fear-based control. When I became older, 18, 19, I started really looking into the Bible for the first time, and, and I'm really learning it for the first time. There wasn't a lot of teaching outside of my grandfather, and he was a private person, and he was of the belief that religion is a private thing. So I, I didn't have a very strong background in it. Once I started looking into myself, 
I started asking questions of the elders. What about this? I started to see inconsistencies, things that they were doing and had taught that were not consistent with the teaching of God's word. Yeah. I went to them with these questions, and they didn't have answers. When I couldn't get answers, I realized this is all fake. This is not genuine. They don't even know why they're doing this. And so I left. And once you left an organization like that, you were completely ostracized. So I found myself in a situation where I'd grown up in just a loving family relationship with tremendous help. Like, for example, if anyone ever got sick in the church, you never had to worry about making your house payment. The men would step up. That's special. Money would be provided. If there was a widow or someone that needed a roof, um, Saturday there were 70 men there with their nail bags and women with a potluck lunch putting a roof on the house. That was the environment. You never worried about anything. Very community. It was a closed community, and it was, but I didn't know it was different than anything else. It was just what I was raised in. That was life for you. That, that was, was life. life. Yeah. All yeah. my friends around me, uh, all my family, everyone. When I decided to leave, I was, I was cut off. From all of that. So from my grandfather, my parents, all my friends, I was completely isolated. So that was my first exposure to the world. Yeah. So there were these kind of good principle things like this community part of it. But as long as you're, you're there, you're experiencing that. And there's like this, this helping each other community sense of being a family, kind of one big family that was there. Yeah. 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 And I want to be careful not to, to demonize that, yeah. uh, that environment. You know, I, I told you why it didn't work for me yeah. uh, and why I had to leave. But at the time, if you were to ask me 20 years ago, I would have had worse things to say sure, about that sure, environment. Sure. But now, in hindsight, and to realize the benefit and how special that was, yeah. um, now I, I look upon it very differently. There are, yeah, there, there are levels of that um, in, I'll just say, like Eastern Slavic life community as well. Um, and, and there's like varying degrees. But, um, for example, for, for me, growing up in, in, in America here in Spokane, I, you know, born and raised here. But there was there's a pretty strong Slavic community. And so my I had American friends and I went to public school and, you know, I, I had friends that I went to high school with. But my um, my like high school experience or like my my youth experience was much more in the local church that I attended and that kind of Slavic community of guys and gals. It was a little bit less in the like American community of guys and gals, even though that's funny to say I am an American. I was born here. But just the, the culture thing. And there's also this aspect that I naturally connected better with more like immigrant family first generation second generation immigrants than i did with like um natural born you know americans because of home was still a you know kind of more slavic culture community things like that so i resonate with that but and there wasn't you know i there are more like like i said extreme varying degrees but that exists even in kind of a just a cultural level i think in every kind of major city where there's whether it's like an armenian community or whether it's like a slavic community like la or something there's you know anaheim area there's Armenians is like the thing there, you know, and, and in Seattle and Portland and Sacramento, there are really large Slavic communities and they kind of hang out with each other and they do dinner with each other, they do church with each other. They don't really do anything else. And so um, I totally, I totally get that for, for us. It's kind of like this. Um, if you need a car fixed or like, let's say you need your car painted or a thing, you go to like the Slavic mechanic that you know. Oh yeah. It's a whole underground economy. <laughs> In a way. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I, I actually experienced this. I, I have a lot of Russian and Ukrainian friends. Yeah. Um, I worked in, um, I did the auto industry for a while. And so I rented a shop next to um, Ukrainian body shop. Very warm and welcome people. Many of them became my friends, but I found out from them that they could operated a completely independent economy. Uh, if you needed something welded, if you need something fixed, 
you would call Sergey, and he would call a guy, and pretty soon he'd show up and do it. And he'd do it for about a fourth the price. It, yeah, it's it's more just like you're in this community, and hey, I know a guy, I know and a he guy. can help me, and here you go, and you, you get the job done. And so it's it's almost like I think that's just the way that life was done there at that time, mm-hmm. and so that's why they come here and kind of do life here. You have to, I think, we have to miss this part too. Like, business is not so common like it is in America in other, at least maybe not so common, but not so plentiful maybe as it is in other countries. Here in America, I feel like anybody can kind of go open a shop and try to do this and run this and have a mobile mechanic or whatever. You know, that's that's amazing. And that's why I love America. America is incredible. But that's not really the way of life, especially in, you know, former Soviet Union. That's that's not the way of life. It's you can't just kind of go open a business and have a right. shop or do anything like that. So I think that's kind of why, why they are that way. Um, my, my dad, when he came here and my, my parents came here, um, one of the motivating factors and dreams that he had was this dream of having a business and capitalism, this idea of like you're kind of free to, to do something and do that. And um, that's so special and that was their motivating thing. Can you maybe speak on that a little bit like, you know, I don't know where, how you've traveled or kind of where, where you've been, but like in this, you, you're free to do this YouTube channel. You know, you, you have this freedom to do this lifestyle. I mean, you have this, you, you have the, in America, you have this ability to, you know, share your thoughts with the world. How important do you think that is? And like, do you encourage people to, to do that, to speak their mind, to start a YouTube channel, start a podcast, start a blog, write things, go do, go do life. Like, do you, do you encourage and motivate that? Do you think that that's important? Do you think young people should continue to do things like this? And speak their mind and teach and share with the world? Yeah, there's a lot of questions you're asking me in in that. Um, Are you talking about fulfilling the American dream? Are you talking about starting a business? I would say let's, yeah, fulfilling fulfilling that American dream. I was pretty isolated growing up. Very patriotic, very much America is the center of the universe, the best in the, uh, you know, of course, you know, we're the best at everything, right? Yeah, I yeah. believe capitalism, you know, there was capitalism and everything else was bad. Everything right, else right, was communism, right? right. right? <laughs> my, my wife, bless her, you know, her mother is Swedish and the family lives over there and she's bilingual. And, and so we, she exposed me to these cultures, uh, Western Europe. Um, she's well-traveled. Their family is more international. My brother-in-law lives in the Netherlands. So this opened my eyes greatly. There's no education like travel. And what I saw is I saw that our system is not necessarily the best system. Yeah. If you're talking about building a business and making money, raising capital, then it's the best place in the world. But that's not what life is all about. I used to think so. That was my motivation. As Americans, our value as men, is we're basically a utility. The moment we are not able to provide resources, there isn't much for us. We're kind of put out to pasture. There's, no, there's not a lot of young people that are putting an emphasis the importance and the wisdom of age. It's like, well, you can't produce anymore, then off you go, let's bring someone else in the can. Or some of these older cultures, and especially the Slavic cultures, they put an importance upon wisdom. I can see it in you and your brothers, how you admire your dad, how you show respect for your dad. You appreciate that. He's not someone that's now just to be put out to pasture and no longer relevant, someone that get in your way or a burden. He's he's the the center of the family. Yeah. He's the patriarch. You know, and so that, that is something, when I, I saw that, and also going into countries that don't emphasize work as the number one thing. You know, I used to look at the French or the Italians, and like, oh, goodness, three-hour lunches? Are you serious? How can you get anything? Four-hour work weeks? But now I see, well, that's the better way. You know, why, we're not just here to be machines, to utilities. It's the entire, we have 
spending raising our kids or just sitting in the grass is, is more important than the work. But no one puts value on that in this country. If you're not producing, then you're not valuable. It's what's just the, a go, go, go all the what's time. What's the first question an American asks you when he meets you? What do you do for a living? What do you do for a living? Yeah. Yeah. And, and based on that answer, he will or she will put you in a category, whether or not you are an important enough person to have in their life or even to speak with. Why do you think that is? Why do you think Americans are so focused on, on work and building and growing and doing all that kind of stuff? I don't know. And that's a deep question. What gets back to the culture? Um, we do it now, most of us, just because that's all we know. And Americans don't, most don't have passports and haven't traveled and don't know another way. Wow. Um, I, I think the best thing, any, especially Americans, can do is travel. You would be better off than putting your kids in public school to take a year off and go travel, even if you didn't do curriculum. What they'll learn and what they'll absorb See, yeah. from other cultures, um, especially cultures that put an emphasis on family and community, it, is the best thing you could do. Wow. Yeah, it affected me when I, was, when I did some travel, too, and saw and learned and my eyes were open. That 100% true. I can absolutely attest to that. That's amazing. Um, well, just maybe you know, change segments a little bit. I want to talk kind of boots and a little bit footwear and kind of your experience. I actually saw one time, I just remembered, you did a video once about wooden shoes. Dutch shoes. I don't know anything about that. Can you can you tell me what even that was and how did you even find that and what even is that? Did you know that Dutch, Dutch wooden shoes are rated to safety shoes in the Netherlands? No, I did not know that. They are. Wow. Yeah. If it requires a hard toe, you can wear a wooden shoe. Like actually, we're talking legitimately. This is a full-on wooden shoe carved out of a like a tulip wood. Fascinating. Are they comfortable? surprisingly comfortable yes i used to wear them when i was in my wood shop i would work standing there eight ten days making content i would wear them and i never wore really wore them around i can't can't go that far it's just a little bit too strange um but i i did find them very comfortable and are they they're they're not malleable obviously because it's wood but how does it like stay on your foot or is it like a like a clog like a slip on just like a clog okay okay just like a clog but the there's just uh, thousands of years of evolution that have went into the design. Now, not, they're not all created equal, just like your boots. Yeah. You know, your boots are going to be very different than a Walmart boot. Sure, they may sure, look sure. like the same on the outside, but a master shoemaker that knows feet and has been doing this probably seven, eight, ten generations knows what he's doing. And you'd be shocked how, how comfortable they are. They'll get to the point where you don't even know you're wearing them. And also the wood, it's, very, it's really good for traction, especially in wet ground. That wet, when that wood gets wet... It, it sticks to everything. Never even would have thought about that. It's, wow. it's very interesting. That's interesting. And, we, and the great thing about wooden shoes is if you have a hot spot or you have a problem with it, you just get in there with your die grinder or your sander or your chisel and you make it to whatever you want. Can't really do that with leather. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I got a, I had a, used to race BMX bikes and I had a crash and broke my foot. So I have a bone that sticks out on the side and it always gives me a problem with shoes. And that, when I got those wooden shoes, that was a problem. I just took a drill and just drilled a hole in it and uh, we were good. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Um, so yeah, b- back to boots and footwear. You mentioned you bought your first pair when you're like 18, 19. Mm-hmm. What did they cost you? 500 bucks. Back then that was a big chunk of change. Big chunk of change. 10 bucks an hour was I was making. How long did they last you? Well, I had them up until maybe 10 years ago. That's awesome. And they weren't worn out. I just I had so many boots. I had to make decisions. Yeah. That's really cool. That's really cool. Um, and then you got into your wildland career. Was getting into your wildland career kind of the first time you got introduced to like this leather wildland firefighting boot, or did you know about that already? Actually, my first boots were steel shank. Mm. And that was fine for a construction boot, maybe preferable, some people would say. Um, but when I started on fire, I, I looked, they told me, you need to have these special boots, these fire boots I kept hearing about. 
and I knew about custom boots. I'd always worn them, but I had, well, I have my, my, my boots. Those will be fine. I'm not going to buy another pair. Yeah. Well, I learned the hard way why you don't go into a fire with steel shanks. Did you actually have to stand in like a bucket? Of I water? literally did. Wow. Yeah. I had, I was on an engine, so I had access to water. So I had to con- cool my feet down all the time. It was miserable. When I got my first paycheck from that fire, the very first fire in Colorado, I went to, I forget the name of the shop, but I bought my first pair of custom-made boots. That's awesome. And that was a good milestone change in kind of the direction of footwear for you. Yeah, that opened me up to to the industry. And then I've always had a real uh, fascination for traditional logging. You know, something my granddad did and the traditional (laughs) tools. Yeah. And so that, you know, you can't be into logging without really being into boots either. Yeah. We had mentioned earlier, you talked about how is it that the East Coast guys don't know about this style. And I, I was, I was remembered and I was going to mention it to you. So I remember I, I did some of my own digging into that. And that actually there's a, another content creator, a guy that is a friend of mine. He did some of his own research too. And I remember I used to ask around, so I would get a lot of customers that are old, like old timers, I would say like sixties and seventies and eighties. And, you know, they come in and either they want their heels done or they want to resole and they got an old pair of boots or something. So anytime I get a chance like that to talk and ask them questions, I always do. I just always enjoyed that. And, um, a lot of so a lot of them that are like let's say they're in their 70s today and they were a logger they would have been logging before all this modern equipment and so they were doing like classic falling with you know either crosscut saw or chainsaw and so they would travel a lot and then they'd mingle with a lot of other loggers from different places and the kind of consistent story that I would hear is about the lines of this that because the east coast you know obviously when people came to America first they started on the east and just like we talked about last night as they continued to move and move and move there was less and less logging going on in this part of the country and so just the west is so new in comparison to how old the east is so we're talking the 1600s or whatever in the east and you know Washington state is as new as like 1880 something or whatever don't quote me on that but so they would literally talk about how their grandpa or great grandfather was like logging the areas of like major cities, like where it's downtown Seattle today. No, they were like, their grandpa remembers clearing that forest. And so I think that the reason the East Coast guys literally don't really know what this is, is because they've, that area has forgotten it. And that's a lost kind of generation. And this is still so relatively kind of fresh within the last two generations ago. So if I'm, I'm 24 and my grandpa's 86, you know, my father's 56. So 86 years ago is just my grandpa. My great-grandfather would be probably, you know, 100-something years ago. And so just one or two generations, boom, you've got kind of that, that distance there. So that was, was, was my always understanding. And also, we talked about this too, they're, you know, on the East Coast, they have hills. They don't have mountains, right? And so I think that the, that heel part plays such a big part into the grip, into the, you know, digging into the side of the hill. And that's what I would always hear from these these just kind of, fun conversations I would have with these old time loggers. And I would always hear having a tall heel and they would always talk about this drive corks. I don't know if you know what that is. Drive corks, screwing corks. They would always talk about drive corks, drive cork, drive cork, drive cork. And that was good because they lacked some technology for like the screw and stuff. I think the screwing is much better, but that was like redwood drive, drive corks. So a, a bit of a longer, you know, inch and a half maybe. And it was a drive corks. And it was, and so today when we build corks, we do a rubber bottom and then we do the male and female receptacle and then it's a screw in. So it's replaceable. So the technology is a little bit better. Back then it would be a leather sole bottom, a thick oak veg tan, like we're talking 14 iron or something like heavy duty. And then the drive cork would literally be like a, like a pin 
with these two kind of hooks in it, kind of like a like a fish hook type style, but with two sides. And so you drive in this drive cork, and it would stick into the leather, and that's it. And but when it comes out, total you, destruction. Total destruction, exactly. Yeah. And so they had these redwood drive corks, and I, I would always have these kind of older retired loggers. Do you have redwood drive corks? Do you have and they don't even make them anymore. That's like a thing of the past. So I think that's kind of that differentiation right there. Um, you know, you've been here mostly kind of in this area, this, you know, West Coast life. And did you guys, I mean, do you remember anybody from your community wearing corks, logging? Were you guys, oh, 100%. was it drive cork style? Was it, would do, is that, is there some truth to what I'm saying about this difference between East Coast, West Coast kind of style? Is that oh, what it, you're it, understanding? It's reflected in everything. Okay. Uh, yeah. And, and to build on what you said, the East Coast guys, it's not only that they forgot it. They never knew it. How we log out here is completely different than what we out, out there. Just take the bark of a Douglas fir tree. An old growth Douglas fir tree bark can be a foot thick. Wow. That takes different tools, yeah. uh, different springboards. <clears throat> Even the corks are different uh, because they have to go deeper. They have to bite deeper because you, if, you're, if you're cutting oak, it's very different than if you're cutting old growth Doug fir. If you look at the axe head patterns, um, the patterns that were designed for the giant timbers of the redwoods, the crosscut saws made by Royal Chinook, or Royal, yeah, the Royal Chinook or the Simons Company didn't exist on the East Coast. They actually had to create special tools to deal with and bandage the giant trees out West. Wow. And that extended to the boots as well. You know, talk about mountains. We have serious mountains. I've seen it firsthand. I, I was on a 20-person hand crew. There was one firefighter that had uh, boots without a, a, a heel, flat-bottom boots, and we were on real steep terrain. Uh, I, I saw him fall down no less than 100 times that day, uh, up and down running hose line. So it was unsafe. So that that I always thought that heel developed for that very reason, the steep terrain for logging to be able to not slip out from under you. I've learned today that there's even more to it than that. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of the balance part. There's a lot of this um, stability that goes into it. Something that I've seen a lot too is um, there might be a customer who never had a heel or arch in their boot, and then like they'll, they'll – <clears throat> They're just experiencing regular foot kind of trouble. They'll they'll put it on for the first time, and at first it's kind of this weird, uncomfortable feeling. But then I've seen it kind of with my own eyes, like traveling to fairs and academies and shows, fitting people. You give it like five minutes, and then they're kind of like, okay, well, this is new, but it's kind of my body's acclimating. I've had guys like walk around for like 20, 30 minutes, and then it's like after walking around for two, they're like begin to, it's like their revelation. It's like, oh, you know, and they begin to feel this thing in their knees and their ankles and their hips. I would actually v wager this. I don't know what your thoughts are on this, but I bet you that, and it could be a little bit true or false based upon because people work so hard, but if you were to take a guy who's been wearing logging boots and he's 70 and you take a guy who hasn't been wearing proper arch support, heel support footwear, and he's also 70 and they were both doing laborious jobs. I'd feel very confident saying that that guy wearing the logging boots is going to be in a better physical condition, hips, knees, back than the other guy. I just think that's there's 100%. there's no, there's there's proof. The proof is is that I've seen it a thousand times. You put a guy into a proper boot. Usually they're introduced either by construction or someone on the site that knows something, or they get into fire. What you'll find that five ten years down the road, now their dress shoes are the same. They're still wearing the same boots, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. maybe not the same boot, but they're going to the company that built the yeah. boot, and they're buying an Oxford or they're buying a Chuka boot, something that's, that still has the same structure in the arch because they've come to depend upon it. They realize that it's so much better. Yeah. They feel better, less back pain. The thing that I try to tell guys, that when, what they do is they, when, they, when you tell them, go buy a pair of $600 custom boots. 
you know, all they're looking at is the price. You know, they're looking at the cheaper boots, you know, something that may be half the price, but they look the same. It's a hard sell for them. They don't get yeah. it. What they don't understand is that actually it's cheaper to buy expensive boots. Yes. If you just talk, if we just stripped away just the, just the enjoyment you get from owning them, um, the comfort, the health benefits, less back pain, less hip pain. Um, you're going to have more energy. You're going to be less tired when you come home to your kids at the end of the day. It makes a big difference. Big difference. Big difference. I agree. And if you don't haven't experienced that or don't know that, it's hard to explain that to someone. So just for that reason alone, it's worth doing to me. Yeah. But when you factor in the cost, I worked with guys in construction that would buy off-the-shelf inexpensive boots every year, and they were done. And then they it were also six months in them while they were breaking down yeah. and falling apart. Yeah. $200, $250 in pain, poor boots, poor quality, wet feet, yeah. all that. Yeah. Whereas if you would pay it up front, invest in the boots, you know, those boots will last. If you take care of them, I've had boots that have lasted 20 years, eight, nine, 10 years. You resole them, 300 bucks, you get a, basically a brand new boot. You know, when you factor that out over lifetime of work, you'd be far better off to start off with a good boot. I agree. How do you personally feel physically in wearing boots for so long and like, you know, knees, back, hips thing? Have you seen it uh, noticeable, like maybe your peers and stuff that didn't? Have you seen anything like that firsthand? That's hard to quantify. Yeah. Um, I, 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 I don't know that I could answer that. Yeah. Um, anyone who, I mean, you're not good. You, if you talk to, I, there's a lot of loggers in our area. We live in a logging town. My neighbors have log trucks in there in their yards yeah the small store says please take off your corks before you come in you know, that's the that's the community that we live in these guys are not wealthy people uh they're paycheck to paycheck a lot of them are very have very modest means but there's one thing they don't skimp on and they're all wearing custom boots yeah that's true you're not supposed to cheap out on your bed or your boots yeah so that's my granddad said if you're you're either in one or you're in the other you need to, so cool. to buy the best boots you can afford yeah i agree 100 percent. cool cool okay i know we're kind of short on time cody thank you so much it's been a pleasure. You've been awesome. Just you're such a wealth of knowledge. It's personally interesting and fun for me to just listen to you share all this stuff. So, guys, if you haven't, go check out his YouTube channel. Is you do daily lives and things like that. Is there anything that you specifically want to mention about your channel? Anything cool to like, you know, playlists or things like that? Or just no, go just come over and hang out. Wranglerstar.com. Yeah, we awesome. do daily live streams when I'm in town, twelve thirty. Cool. So come Perfect. and join us. And, Perfect. Uh, we uh, take no prisoners. <laughs> Perfect. Sounds good. Thanks so much, guys. Thanks for listening. We'll see you on the next one. Thank you, Cody. Thank you. Yeah.